What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? Why do Catholics worship Mary? Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? Where is purgatory in the Bible? I think the Pope has too much authority. What's stopping you? You are called to communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Well, let me reiterate that question you just heard. What is stopping you from becoming Catholic? That's the question we ask here on EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders every day, Monday through Friday, and every Monday right here on EWTN Television. If you'd like to be part of the program, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. Or you can always send us an email. That email address is ctc at ewtn.com. I'm Jack Williams, sitting in today for Tom Price. Your producer is Charles Beery. Matt Gubensky is uh, screening your phone calls, and our social media maven is Mr. Jeff Burson. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And I'm joined, as we are every day, by Dr. David Anders. How in the world are you? Jack, doing great. How about you? I am terrific, thank you, but I have in my possession an objection. Okay. From Lucy. She says, I attend a non-Catholic church. We have Sunday school and study books of the Bible one by one. Over many years, we've studied the Bible fairly well. I find the Catholic church unappealing because they only read a few verses on Sunday morning. The whole main focus of the Mass is the Eucharist. This is good, but how can I give up my Bible study? Why don't Catholics have child, youth, and adult Sunday school every week? It can draw more people to the church. Yeah, thanks. That is a great objection, and I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. So I commend you for your study of Scripture, and I, I recognize that your, say, educational opportunities in your local Catholic parish may not match what you're presently offered in your Protestant church. Um, I, I don't have a defense for that, for that lacuna. Uh, it's something... You know, the, the, the challenge of offering engaging uh, ongoing faith formation in Catholic parishes is something that is sort of my daily work. I'm, I'm, I work for the Diocese of Birmingham in faith formation, and this is something that we have very much on the brain. And it's the mind of the Church, right, to have formation and education for youth and adults and young people, and I, we very much want to do that. I think uh, it's not a matter of the willingness of the Church to offer it. There's, there's not a, a, his, a culture of doing that as much in North American Catholicism, uh, and there are historical reasons for that. Uh, but as, as far as the attitude of the Church is that the faithful should study sacred scripture, um, and they should absolutely be enga- engaged in ongoing faith formation. Now, I want to say something about um, the centrality of the Eucharist to the Mass, and you acknowledged, well, you know, that's a good thing, but, okay, well, there is a difference in the way Catholics conceive of Holy Communion, profound difference, uh, from the way Protestants typically think of it, and about its centrality to the liturgy. So the Catholic position is that the worship Christ left to the Church just fundamentally was the Eucharist. 
that that is the principal act of Christian worship. It is first and foremost the sacrifice that the church offers to God, and it presents the sacrifice of Christ. It, it memorializes the death of Calvary and is a, a demonstration of what we are to do with our lives. St. Paul says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your spiritual act of worship. And so we, we ritualize uh, that act. We memorialize the death of Christ. And in, and in doing that, uh, Pope Pius XII wrote that the Mass is the most efficacious way of attaining sanctity. And I believe that's true in this respect. It is possible to read the Bible from cover to cover and know every word of it and to not live a sacrificial life. I mean, I've, I've known Protestant scholars, well, Catholic scholars too, for that matter, but I've known Protestant scholars who were extremely knowledgeable of sacred scripture, and that knowledge led to pride rather than to charity. Now, I mean, I'm not saying that's true of all of them, plenty of charitable Protestant scholars, but just, in, just the, having learned the Bible isn't sufficient to bring about that transformation of life. Now, if I might say something about my own background in Protestantism, there was a, a real veneration of the Word of God, a real uh, devotion to studying and understanding and, and mastering the text of Scripture. Uh, and I think at times it could become superstitious. It was so in my own life, so I'm not accusing you, but my own engagement with the Bible as a Protestant was superstitious in this respect, that I felt like if I could really get a handle in scholarship, in, in knowledge, in memorization, uh, in argument, uh, maybe in prayer— of the Word of God, that simply my knowledge and engagement with Scripture as such was what I needed to do in the Christian life. When the Catholic view is Scripture, like everything in the faith, is a means to an end, and the end is that we could be transformed into the life of Christ, transformed into the charity of Christ, be, be recreated in Christ's likeness and image, so that we come to see the world as Jesus does, and, and love the poor and the marginalized, and forgive our enemies, and renounce our sins. This, this moral transformation is the key. And I would suggest, as my own personal belief, that it is possible to come to that kind of transformative encounter with Christ and know almost nothing of the Bible. Some, you have to know some, you need to know the kerygma, the message of Jesus' death and resurrection and his ascension into heaven is giving us the church and the Holy Spirit. But say, I, could, I might be able to go my whole life and never know the story of Jonah, I'm not saying you should understand it, and, and still become a saint, right? I, I might... I might never learn all the discrete laws in Leviticus and still become a saint, right? And so the, the question, what do I do with my religious life? What kind of practices should I engage? First and foremost needs to be driven by the question, what is going to be most effective in, in conforming me to the likeness and image of Jesus? And for a Catholic, the holy sacrifice of the Mass is really central to that because it puts on display, it demonstrates to us, it puts in front of us the reality of Christ's self-offering at Calvary, which is what we're meant to live. Moreover, we believe that in participating in Holy Communion, we're actually communing with the real body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus, and that there's transformative power there for those who approach it with faith and charity. So we're all about the Bible, and we read actually long passages of it in Holy, in, in Holy Mass, but, uh, but the Bible is subordinate to the conversion of life to the person of Jesus. What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? We'd like to know. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders.
It's EWTN's call to communion with Dr. David Anders. We'd love to hear from you. A couple of open phone lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. First up today is Crystal. She's in Houston, Texas, watching us on YouTube today. Crystal, you are on with Dr. David Anders. Hi, Dr. Anders. Hi. Um, my question, yes, my question is, I was reading the Catechism, and I've seen this question brought up from other Catholics before, as to why, if they receive the sacrament of baptism and confirmation, there seems to be no change in the life of adult Catholics. And from what I was reading in paragraph 1231, and, and onward, where it talks about how the practice of infant baptism developed, and how... To remedy that, Second Vatican Council um, brought in the right of Christian initiation. My question is, why do we still maintain the practice of infant baptism if it seems to be there's a disconnect between baptism and confirmation, and that what we know that that confirmation is necessary, but it seems like why not make it one sacrament rather than separate them as two? Yeah, thanks. So uh, there are two questions here that I want to explicitly address. One of them is, uh, how do we account for baptized people whose lives do not seem to be transformed? And secondly, does that have any implications for the timing of baptism? And let me go to the first question first. It is the teaching of the Catholic faith that baptism is to be presented to people who have faith and want faith and are determined to, to change their course of life. And so repentance and faith are conditions, right, for the, for the fruitful reception of baptism. <clears throat> and, and if they're lacking, those dispositions can revive the sacrament later on. But you, you have to have that disposition of faith and, and repentance. And then the, the purpose to live a life of charity and the virtues. And uh, the, the reason for a sacrament is not to have a, a magic spell that automatically transforms a person. The reason that Christ gave us sacraments is he wanted to do two things. He, he wanted to give us a sign, and, and all of the sacraments are irreducibly signs or symbols. They're more than that, but they're not less than that. And the Catechism says, because they're signs they teach. So there is an inescapably pedagogical element to the sacrament. And how does that work out? Well, wh- whatever it is that Christ wants us to do, the really important things, he represents to us in a sacrament. So with the case of baptism, he wants us to die to ourselves and be reborn in him. A person who lives their baptism vigorously is a person who is committed to that project of dying to self and rising again in new life in Christ and should make the knowledge of their own baptism integral to their sense of personal identity so that one reflects on a frequent basis on who I am as a Christian. That's why Pope Gregory could say to the, to the church, become what you are. Like, you've been made children of God by baptism, so live that way. Embrace your identity as children of God and and really actualize the seed that's been planted within you. Uh, But the the symbolic aspect, the pedagogical aspect of the sacrament should help that process along. I should reflect, I'm a baptized person, I need to live different, I need to die to myself. Now, if baptism is presented as a kind of magic pill— and it's never tied to that cognitive dimension. It's never, the, 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 the believer is never brought to consider, to contemplate their identity as a baptized person. 
then of course it's not going to be effective, and it's not supposed to be. That's not the way the sacrament is meant to work. It's meant to work in conjunction with the, the, the act of faith. Thomas says that sacraments are the sacraments of faith because they're protestations, they're, they're, they're ritual demonstrations of the faith that saves us. Right? So you can't separate the sacrament from the ongoing personal, conscientious act of faith. All right. Um, now, there is another aspect to the sacrament, and that is the supernatural element. There is the element of grace. There's the, the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the believer that empowers the sign to be effective in one's life, but that efficacy is, again, conditioned on that personal embrace, that, that, that self-donation of myself to God uh, that we call the act of faith. Now, does that have implications for the timing of baptism? Because I've placed so much emphasis on one's personal appropriation of the sacrament, does that mean we should limit the sacrament to adults only or to people who have the conscious memory of their baptism? And that doesn't follow at all. That doesn't follow at all. Um, because someone who has received baptism as an infant may not remember the rite, but they can absolutely trust that they were baptized. I mean, I can know that I'm baptized because my parents told me, yes, you are baptized. I look at the baptismal certificate hanging up on your wall. Here it is. It says Anders was baptized, all right? Um, and so I can, I can, and I've seen other people be baptized. So I know what the thing is, and I know that it was done to me, and I know that my identity as a child of God is established in the sacrament. I can have absolute certainty of the truth of the sacrament in my life without having a conscious memory of the ceremony, right? I can extrapolate from other people's baptisms. Now, why would I want to apply it to a child? Well, because from the Catholic point of view, baptism really does make you a member of the Church. This is the right of entrance into the body of Christ, which is the Church. I've become a priest in the Catholic Church so that I'm, I am sacramentally configured to offer the sacrifice of my life. Um, I, I receive that gift of sanctifying grace, which can be nurtured through ongoing formation. Um, and, uh, uh, and, I, and as a member of Christ's body, I become entitled to all of the graces and benefits uh, and duties and obligations of Catholic life. And so our expectation is that children who are baptized will come up in the nurture and admonition of the Church so that they always live a Catholic way of life. If, if they don't embrace that, that's not the fault of the sacrament. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. <clears throat> 833-288-3986. Kind of a related question, Dr. Anders. Uh, Jeff is watching on YouTube in Bismarck, North Dakota, which is Real Presence Radio Land. And he says, hello, my friends say they aren't Catholic because other Christians are simply better Christians. To them, non-Catholics seem to be kinder, more welcoming, generous. They say the odd good Catholic is explained as good in spite of their Catholicity and not because of it. This is a hard feeling to explain or overcome. Does Dr. Anders have any advice on this? Um, yeah, sure, I do, absolutely. So, you know, one of my first encounters with a Catholic person in my life, and I, and I grew up in Protestant land here in Birmingham, Alabama, one of the most Protestant cities in America. All the Catholics that I knew were ex-Catholics. I didn't know any living, breathing Catholics growing up. Um, and uh, I once, as a, as a child, uh, would have been... Um, when Mother Angelica moved here in what year? 1962. Yeah, okay, so this would have been in the 70s. It was before the network, but the, the convent was, was on Old Leeds Road. And um, my family used to swim at a swimming club that was close by. And I remember being a little kid and driving down Old Leeds Road with my mother, looking out the window and seeing, like, women in funny clothes. And I said to my 
very anti-Catholic Protestant mother. What's that? And it was all you could almost hear. Roll them up. Those are Catholics. <laughs> and I, I sort of forgot they existed after that. That was my exposure to Catholics growing up, you know. Um, and uh, and I had all kinds of prejudices against them because the Catholics that I knew were all ex-Catholics who gave nothing but a bad report about their Catholic life. And uh, I went to college, at Tulane University, and uh, you know I went to college with Catholic kids and Protestant kids and Jewish kids, and and they did what freshman boys are wont to do by and large you know they they went out and they took full advantage of living in new orleans that has a very flexible attitude towards the enforcement of underage drinking i'll put it that way you know so it was the this typical kind of nonsense you would expect from college freshmen but i had this one guy that i lived with and he wore a crucifix and he said very little about jesus as such you know he wasn't he wasn't sort of demonstrative in his piety except that he did talk a lot about how much he liked his catholic high school and I noticed, his name was Dave, I noticed that Dave, like, um, you know, he'd have a beer, but everybody else was just stinking drunk, and Dave wasn't, you know. And I noticed he was, uh, he wasn't bringing girls home, you know, and he, uh, he, he got kind of frustrated with some of the campus culture and its gross immorality, and, and you know, he, he was honest, and he, you know, he didn't cheat, and he just was a decent sort, you know, and he, he kind of stood out to me and the, the mass of humanity there because he, you know, he had that crucifix on and he just sort of seemed like a decent sort who lived a pretty reasonably virtuous life. And that was a kind of a rare commodity in the world of freshmen in New Orleans. Right. And and so it was it was only years later because I was very used to a kind of style of overt piety in Protestantism where I assume I associated religiosity with a lot of outward displays of piety, maybe some outward displays of generosity as well, but there was a lot of Jesus talk, a lot of proselytism, a lot of Bible bashing that would go on, and a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of pious discussions about one's own life and one's own walk and affirmations of one's commitment to Jesus and that sort of thing. And so Dave's style of Christian piety was so more, so much more understated than that that I didn't immediately connect his decency to his Catholicism until years later when I thought back on it and I went, yeah, that's what we call the life of the virtues. That's what we call the life of the virtues. My point in the story was that there was a kind of quiet virtue and goodness about this individual that was demonstrative. It was, it was visible. It was evident. But, but I didn't immediately connect it to his religious faith. And I think that kind of decency in Catholic life is far more common than you give credit to, Right. Because you, you, you may not connect someone's goodwill and, and virtue to Catholicism if they don't come with that real demonstrative piety. Now, um, are there Catholics who are jerks? Of course there are. Of course there are. And, and, but my experience, and I, I grew up in the Protestant world, uh, very much so, was that you found all sorts in that community. You found people that were generous and kind and humble and loving and giving. You found others that, as Jesus said, love to pray on street corners to be seen by men. Um, others that took a positively malicious pleasure in enforcing religious authority on, you know, us junior high students. I mean, I had a PE coach one time that talked about how he was going to beat us senseless and enjoy it, right? <laughs> In the name of Jesus, nonetheless, you know? So uh, that's humanity. Um, Catholics, our own view about our relationship to the church is it's we don't we don't claim to be a community of the elect a community of the predestined um you know as those set apart know for sure they're going to heaven it's more like 
look, here is this buffet of riches, the sacraments, the teachings, the traditions of the church, the lives of the saints and examples of holiness. Come who else, who, whosoever will and, and, and eat and be filled, but we're not going to make you, you know? And so there are people who live their whole lives in and around the Catholic church and never take up the call, the personal call to holiness. And, and they're not, they're not few in number. Christ talks about them. The, he, he says, you know, the, the wheat and the tares will grow together. But then there are those who come in and embrace the thing with, you know, with both hands, give themselves fully to the imitation of the life of Christ. And those are the ones that end up getting canonized. Those are the ones we call the saints. But we don't disavow the, uh, the, you know, the, the nominal Catholic. We don't, we don't kick them out. We don't say you're not really Catholic. And we don't demand that they do something. That they're they're within the church. They're part of the church. They're understood to be Catholic, um, but their their lack of zeal again is not the fault of the church. It's it's their own desire to not jump in and grab it with both hands. Uh, Margaret is in Trenton, New Jersey. She's listening on Domestic Church Media today. Margaret, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Hi there. Um, I'm interested in the purgatory. The belief in purgatory, like uh, how long has it been a Catholic belief? Is it since like the first century, the beginnings of Christianity? Um, Are there passages that show it in the Bible? Um, And I did hear a a little bit about it. I'm a Protestant, so I don't know very much. But the one thing I did hear that you get out of it because people pray for you, your family prays for you. Yeah, this is a great question. I may have to carry it to the other side of the break. I'm going to get started, but we're going to get cut off in a second by the music. So the the idea that that the Church should pray for the dead goes back as far as we have evidence for Christian prayer. And literally, when we study the history of Christian prayer and devotion, um, prayers to the dead and prayers for the dead are ubiquitous. They're found everywhere in ancient Christianity, and and they go back to the earliest strata of the faith. And and we find uh, in in sacred scripture, particularly in the what Protestants would consider the intertestamental period of Second Temple Judaism in the Book of Maccabees, for example, which is not in Protestant Bibles, but it very much was in the Bible of the early Church. Um, the idea of praying for the dead uh, that's specifically commended and care for the dead, a, a pastoral solicitude for the bodies of the dead, that this is a religious duty, is also deeply embedded in the Old Testament. Uh, that the dead pray for us is another biblical doctrine you can find, you know, way back in the book of Kings, uh, all the way to the book of Revelation, so like chapter 5, verse 8, for example. Um, so this is, a, this, is a, this is a network of practices that go back really to the earliest days of Christianity. You begin to get um, speculation about the why, like how is this effective? Um, in uh, in in uh, late antiquities, particularly in about the uh, the third century, Saint Cyprian of Carthage, um, in the fourth century of Augustine of Hippo, explicitly describe purgatory as the as the reality behind that. Like we we offer these prayers because we believe that the souls of the dead are in this intermediate state where they can benefit from them. And there's scriptural warrant for that idea, but I suspect I'll have to get to that on the other side of the break. If you'd like to be part of the program, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288 
3986. We're talking with Margaret in Trenton, New Jersey, but we've got plenty of time and plenty of room for your phone calls. Simply pick up the phone and give us a jingle at 833 833- 288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? It's EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Andrews. You know, our good friends at the Station of the Cross in the Buffalo area and also in Massachusetts need to hear from you next week. They're airing their 2023 Fall Appeal all next week. So if you're listening to any of their 20-plus stations in New York, Pennsylvania, Northeast Ohio, and Massachusetts, please support your EWTN Catholic radio station wherever really you may be living. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. We're talking to Margaret in Trenton, New Jersey, who's asking about the Catholic doctrine of purgatory. Yeah, so she had asked how, how ancient the doctrine was, and I said that we can find evidence for prayers for the dead going back into into the Second Temple period of Judaism. Um, and uh, to that, for that matter, Jews to this day continue to pray for the dead. Uh, uh, there are passages that are highly suggestive of it in the New Testament. So uh, St. Paul writes in Second Timothy, he prays seemingly for um, the, his deceased friend Onesiphorus. That, that seems to be the implication of the passage in Second Timothy 1.16. Um, and then, of course, uh, outside of sacred scripture, we find evidence for it very, very early on. Uh, Tertullian, who is a uh, second century writer, uh, says in one of his later writings that that the, the widow who doesn't pray for her husband has as good as divorced him. That's the way she, her dead husband, you know, has not, uh, uh, that's the way he puts it. And he's obviously referencing a practice that he knows to be traditional within the church. And this is, uh, you know, if it's traditional by the second century, it's reasonable to conclude that it was traditional in the first, right? And it, like I said, it's always been part of uh, of the Jewish tradition as well. So the, in terms of the why, why so why, why does the Church do this? Why has the Church always prayed for the dead? Why do we find evidence of it in sacred scripture? And and the, the here is where we can get into some of the biblical warrant for the, the logic of the doctrine, not just the practice. And one of the things you find in the Bible is that when, when God forgives a soul, he still... Uh, requires that soul to make an act of penance. So you can look at the book of 2 Samuel, for example, chapter 12 or chapter 24, two places where David sins grievously against God. He's confronted by a prophet. He repents. God forgives him. But then God imposes a penance. Right? So the idea that, you know, just, just being forgiven doesn't remove the obligation to make an act of reparation. And that's, that's true in human relationships as well. You know, I, I promise you that if I was leaving EWTN and I backed into Jack Williams' car and I came and said, Jack, I'm really sorry I backed into your car. Will you please forgive me? Jack is going to say yes, but he's going to expect me to at least give him the name of my insurance adjuster, <laughs> right? I'm going to make some sort of reparation. The reparation might not be a condition of my friendship with Jack. Like if I were on particularly hard times, if I was really desperately poor and Jack knew I couldn't pay him, Jack would probably waive the penance. He'd say, well, you know, that's cool, Andrews. You know, I forgive you. We're good, right? But it doesn't, in justice, obviate my responsibility to make some act of reparation. 
And so the, the logic of penance is built into the fabric of sacred scripture and the fabric of human relationships. And you extend that idea, well, what happens if I die and I haven't made reparation for my personal faults? I may be forgiven for them, but I haven't made reparation. Purgatory is one of the ways that we can, we can do that. The other aspect of purgatory is implied by the name, and that's purgation, that's purification. The psalmist writes, who can ascend the Lord's mountain or stand on his holy hill? Only he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Christ commends the pure in heart, for they will see God. And purification in Scripture comes through, per, through suffering of some kind. You, you, there's a picture of this in the prophet Isaiah, chapter 6, when he sees the Lord and he's keenly aware of his unworthiness to be a prophet. And the Lord sends the seraph with this coal, this burning coal from an altar to touch Isaiah on the lips and say, now your impurity is taken away through this burning coal. Now, you know, we're not touched by burning coals carried by seraphs. That's not the Catholic doctrine of purgatory. But that's kind of, a, that's kind of an illustration, kind of a picture of the logic of purification attendant by some kind of, uh, some kind of pain may, may actually be involved in that. Um, you know, our attachment to sin, uh, we usually don't, you know— Alcoholics don't just walk away from the bottle unless they hit rock bottom. That tends to be the pattern in, in overcoming these kind of personal faults. You, one runs into some kind of suffering, and that's the condition of, of, uh, of moral change. That's sort of built into the fabric of human personality. That's also a place where purgatory can accomplish that, if you, uh, making reparation and purification so that when we arrive at heaven, we arrive without the slightest stain of sin about us. And, you know, most Protestants that I've ever met agree that between my physical death and arriving in glory, someplace between now and then, I will be purified of all attachment to sin. Now, most Protestants don't have a way of accounting for that. They just, well, I guess, you know, at the moment of my death, God just purifies me of all sin, right? But they don't actually have a doctrine that describes how that happens. Well, the Catholics do. Thanks so much, Margaret. We appreciate the phone call. Next stop for us is Middletown, Ohio. Ben is in the great state of Ohio listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Ben, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Hi. Um, my question is about the relationship between the Liturgy of the Word and the Eucharistic Liturgy. And I guess specifically, um, are we just, I guess I'm wondering, is the, is the Liturgy of the Word equal to the Eucharistic liturgy, or somehow subordinate to it, or how am I understand the two parts of the, of the Mass? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. It's a fantastic question. So um, it's not subordinate to uh, the liturgy of the Eucharist because it's one liturgical act. The entire Mass is one liturgical act, so you, it's not like you could break it in half and only have one of them. The whole thing is one act of worship. And the proper way to conceptualize the relationship of the Word to the Eucharistic liturgy is like when Nehemiah read, or Ezra, read the law to the people of God after the return from the exile and said, here is the Word of the Lord, and he reads it out, and the people respond, yeah, we will do that, right? And so when we go to Mass, the, the reading of the Scriptures is, it's, is like the challenge to us. This is the mode of life that you are to engage in. These are the teachings that you're supposed to reflect on. This is what Christian life looks like. We've just described it to you. We've shown it to you in the Word of God. And the Liturgy of the Eucharist is our response. It's a call and response. The, litur the, the Eucharist is us giving ourselves to that act of self-sacrifice, ritually, that's been propounded to us in, in the proclamation of the Word. And so the whole thing is one liturgical act. It's a covenant renewal ceremony, and you, you really can't break one out from the other. 
Thanks, Ben. We appreciate the call today. That opens up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Helen is in the great state of Iowa listening to Iowa Catholic Radio today. Helen, thanks for holding. You're on with Dr. Anders. Hello. Hi. Hi. I have a question about baptism. Sure. My son and his my son and his wife are not Catholic, and they were not going to have their children baptized, so I did it myself. I'd like to hear your comments about that. Is that legitimate, etc.? Thank you. So when you say that you baptized them yourself, I, I'm assuming that means that you were the celebrant. You were the one that poured the water over their head and said, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Yes, that's what I did. Okay, so that is actually illicit. What you did is illicit. It's not allowed for you to do that. It, now, it's a, it, it's a valid baptism, but you're not supposed to do it, and I'll tell you why. Because baptism isn't a magic pill, and it doesn't guarantee your entrance into heaven. Baptism presumes one's living a Christian life. It's the right of entrance into the church and into the Christian way of life. And so the church doesn't baptize someone unless they are assured, reasonably assured, that the person will continue in the Christian way of life. Now, because the parents have the, the duty to attend to the, up, the religious upbringing of the child, if the parents are not on board with raising the child as a Catholic, then there's generally there's not a well-founded expectation that the child will be brought up Catholic. Now, there are exceptions to that. So here's the exception. Let's say you have uh, children that don't practice the Catholic faith, but they're willing for you to catechize their child. If they say, yeah, grandmom can take the kid to Mass— grandmom can attend to the religious education, then the church will let grandmom bring the children for baptism. But there has to be someone who will step up and take the responsibility of forming the children in the Catholic faith. Otherwise... The, the, and be allowed to do so. And be allowed to do so. And be allowed to do so. That, then, then there's no well-founded expectation. Otherwise, there's no well-founded expectation they'll be Catholic. And that's why it, it's, it's not allowed what you did. Now, it, that doesn't make it invalid, right? It's still a, If you have the intent to perform the sacraments, a valid sacrament... But, uh, but keep in mind that that by itself is not going to get them into heaven. God bless you, Helen. We'll keep you in our prayers. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Cody is a first-time caller. He is in Columbus, Ohio, listening on St. Gabriel Radio. Cody, you're on with Dr. Anders. Hello, Dr. Anders. Hey, Cody. Hello? Yeah, hey. Um, so a couple calls ago, you um, said something along Catholic consider ourselves um, the elect um, I presume to say like um, you, you know you were trying to clarify like we're not uh, once saved always saved but moving in a forward in a life of virtue um, in the context of your answer um, my question so uh, I've been a Catholic about a year and a half myself and um, grew up in a very uh, Reform tradition, Calvinist kind of background. And so I was just wondering, what is the Catholic take on um, the biblical language of election? You have, you know, the elect mentioned in Scripture and the election mentioned in Scripture. So what what do we as Catholics do with that? Uh, yeah, I really appreciate the question. So there is absolutely a doctrine of predestination in the Catholic faith, and there's absolutely a doctrine of election. Um, what what's different? Well, a lot of differences. But one of the major differences between the Catholic doctrine of predestination and the Protestant doctrine is the Protestant, particularly Refo- the Reformed Christian, claims to be able to know 
with infallible certainty, and that is, um, that's a quote from the Westminster Confession, the Protestant claims to know with infallible certainty that he is among the elect. He can know for sure that he's going to heaven. And thus, it enables the Protestant, allegedly, to be able to distinguish his own spiritual state from that of the, what shall we say, unwashed masses. And that, that attitude of, hey, I am one of God's elect. I am one of the predestined. I'm one of the ones that's definitely going to go to heaven. God has got his mark on me. And, uh, and you guys are not, or at least not yet. That attitude enables all the kind of, of hubris and, uh, and ex- exclusionary attitude and, um, and heresy hunting that came to characterize the whole Calvinist movement, Puritanism in New England, apartheid in South Africa, uh, you name it, all right? It, it's, it's associated with all kinds of personal vices and faults. So, you know, my own doctoral dissertation was on Calvin. One of the things I noticed about Calvin was that when he worked out the, Protest- the, the reform doctrine of predestination, it was in the context of controversy within his own, with his own community in the 1540s in Geneva. And for Calvin, the, the sign of predestination was that you were submissive to the church hierarchy, meaning you agreed with Calvin. So his, his way of distinguishing the elect from the reprobate was, if you're with me, you're, you're one of the elect. And if you're disobedient to me, you're, you're one of the reprobate. And it led to horrible abuses. So when Jerome Bolsick came into Geneva in the 1550s and he said, you know, Calvin, I, maybe I don't agree with you on everything. Calvin's response was to say, we're going to execute you. Now, he, he wasn't allowed to. The city fathers wouldn't let him. But he, 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 he argued for the execution of Bolsick. Right. That, uh, we know what happened in Puritan New England. That's, that's the fruit of that attitude of, I know for sure I'm going to heaven. When, when I was a um, uh, young man, I worked once in a fundamentalist uh, Bible camp, and we taught the children this song. I'm not going to sing it, but I'm going to cite the lyrics for you. One door and only one, and yet its sides are two. I'm on the inside. On which side are you? Right? And, uh, and that, that's a very dangerous spiritual condition to be in. When you are, when you are, um, you know, assured of your sanctity, it's it's one of the attitudes that Jesus condemned, right? Specifically, um, and uh, and we need to watch out for that. The Catholic position is yes, there are elect, and yes, there are predestined. I don't know that I'm in that camp. I hope to be. You know, when when her inquisitors asked Joan of Arc, "Are you in the state of grace?" she said, "If I'm not, may God put me there. If I am, may He keep me there." And that's the right disposition. Christ said, if you persevere to the end, you'll be saved. We don't know now who the saved are, but we know how to get there. We know how to get there. We cling to Christ and the church and the sacraments, and we persevere to the end. Now, there's a, there's a second sense in which we can talk about election, I think, that does apply to all Catholics, and that's the sense in which, if you're a Catholic, you've, you have been called out of the world to become a member of the body of Christ, and as such, you have, you're, you're a participant in the ongoing project of manifesting God to the world, right? Of making the, the proclamation of Christ, the life of Christ, visible like, like, like salt, like, um, like light among the world. And so it's a calling to, uh, to live a better kind of life and to, and to make of yourself something uh, for the good of the world and the, glo- and the glory of God. And we're called to that. We're, we're elect to that in the same way that Israel was called to be a light to the nations. 
Join us for EWTN Bookmark on Saturday afternoons at 4.30 p.m. Eastern and Sunday mornings at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. Doug Keck talks with Catholic authors about their work and their faith life. That's EWTN Bookmark right here on EWTN Radio and Television. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Next stop is Seattle, Washington. Nancy is watching on YouTube today. Nancy, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Oh, hi, Dr. Anders. Anders and uh, and, um, Anyway, a friend of mine and I were talking um, the other day, and he asked me to ask you, what is the uh, Q document or the Gospel of Q? Yeah, Um, yeah, sure, I can speak to that. So Q is is a scholarly invention um, uh, uh, that describes the Gospel material that that Matthew and Luke have in common that is not found in Mark. So most biblical scholars believe that Mark was the first gospel written and that Matthew and Luke borrowed large portions of Mark, almost all of Mark, uh, and then added their own material. And so there's some material that's unique only to Matthew's gospel. There's some material that's unique only to Luke's gospel. But there's a body of material that you can find both in Matthew and Luke, but not in Mark. And since they share it, it it must have come from a common source. What was that source? There is no book. There's no text out there that that, that looks like that. So what scholars postulate is there was a collection. Maybe it was written, maybe not. Maybe it was just an oral collection of sayings of Jesus um, that inform Matthew and Luke, but not, excuse me, yeah, Matthew and Luke, but not Mark. And they call it Q because the German word for source, Kavella, it just begins with a Q, all right? Interestingly, interestingly, if you line up Q, if you take Q out of Matthew and Luke, you sort of make, make a text out of it, and line that up against the epistle of James, you will find some commonalities between the Q source and the James source. Um, there are also some elements of Q that show up in an early Christian text called the Didache that wasn't discovered until the late 19th century, but it's very early Christian uh, catechetical text. And so uh, it's mostly moral material. It's exhortations to moral behavior of a certain kind. Um, and uh, and it, it may have been, this, some scholars speculate, it may have been particularly cherished by the Jerusalem community, right? The, the, the one that was associated with James as opposed to, say, Paul, Alphen, Galatia, or Antioch. Um, and that's what we know about it. And it's, it's, part of, it's part of our tradition. It's part of sacred scripture insofar as it's included both in Matthew and Luke. Uh, Mike is watching us on YouTube today, and he asks, is it better to determine whether a marriage is valid or invalid before or shortly after a quote-unquote marriage before having kids? Should something change to slow all these divorces slash annulments? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So if if you enter into a Catholic marriage, you are entering to, into it with the decision that you intend to contract a valid marriage. If you are conscious of an impediment to a valid marriage, then by all means, don't get married. You know, don't don't hide that from the priest when you go through your, your marriage preparation. Don't hide it from yourself. And by all means, don't get married. Like, you, you shouldn't intend to contract a union that you think on the face of it is going to be invalid. If you're going to do the thing, you intend for it to be a valid marriage. If you have been married in the church, then you must, this is imperative, you must presume the validity of your marriage. You, you, you always presume the validity 
of a contracted marriage. The only time that you question validity is if you get divorced and then you think, you know, I, I wonder if it was a really valid marriage to begin with. Then you can submit that question to the tribunal for, for adjudication and they may come back with a verdict of nullity. But you don't ever, you don't ever sit around in a marriage presuming invalidity. You presume validity and then you make the thing work. You know, it's like an old Pentecostal pastor of mine once said. He says, I'll see you for marriage counseling, but only on condition that you burn your parachute. <laughs> All right. You, you have to presume validity, indissolubility, fidelity, all of those things in order to make the thing work. If you go around doubting the validity of your marriage, I mean, you, you, it's not going to be too long before you're going to want out of there. And if you take that attitude, it's amazing how solutions present themselves to most every problem. Yeah, that's right. My, my Protestant mother, who believed firmly in marriage and not in divorce, once said, uh, she said, uh, you know, David, murder, maybe, divorce, never. <laughs> <laughs> Katie is another first-time caller. She's listening on the Amazon Echo today. Katie, you are on with Dr. David Anders. Oh, thank you for taking my call. I so appreciate it. Um, so my question or my problem is my father was raised Protestant, very devout Protestant, and then married my mom, had us kids, and um, probably about 20 years into their marriage, converted to Catholicism. We were then all raised Catholic, which is wonderful. It's the best gift I was ever given. Um, but my dad has really held on to his Catholic, I'm sorry, his Protestant beliefs, his Protestant roots. Um, and recently he started to say things like where he, if he's saying the Hail Mary, he won't say Mother of God, he'll say Mother of Jesus. Or he spoke with me the other day and said, I don't really think Catholics, you know, I think all denominations, all faiths are valid. And I don't think I need to genuflect. And I don't think I need to make the sign of the cross. And this guy is my daughter's godfather. And so it breaks my heart. <laughs> and so I don't know what to do. Oh, yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate the question. I'm so sorry. Uh, and this is this is really painful. And I and I, I, I sense that. And I, I, I mean, you have my genuine empathy. Um, you know, a couple of the things you told me surprised me. Uh, you said that he's clinging to his Protestantism and refuses to acknowledge Mary as the mother of God. Let me tell you something. You said he was a Lutheran. Luther was absolutely adamant that Mary is the mother of God. In fact, Lutheran theologians in the 16th century, one of their beefs with Calvinists was they thought that Calvinists weren't strong enough on the doctrine of the Theotokos, that the, they thought Calvinists were, were crypto-Nestorians who denied that Mary is the mother of God. And Lutherans were really always very big on, on confessing the divine maternity of, the, of our Blessed Mother. Now, they don't reject all Catholic doctrines on Mary, but, but, uh, but you know, no Lutheran who knows his own faith, would ever reject the doctrine that Mary's mother of God, because to do so is really to deny um, that Jesus is God, right? If, if Mary gave birth to a human person, um, and the divinity kind of comes along and gets adjoined late, at a later time, then, then you, you, know, you, don't have, you don't have the God-man. You, you have something else, and, and so uh, that, that's bizarre to me. Um, Luther clearly didn't think that all religions were equal. He didn't think Catholics were equal either. He thought his was the right one, right? But he, he definitely wasn't an indifferentist regarding Christian denominations. 
But in terms of the interpersonal dynamic, like, you know, what do you do with this antagonistic father who is who's godparent and and openly mocks or derides the Catholic faith? Well, I mean, my my counsel would be to minimize his catechetical influence on this child. You know, you're 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 probably not likely to change his mind because he seems fairly intransigent. Um, although it would be interesting to show him Lutheran declarations of Mary's divine maternity, right? That would be interesting to do. Uh, you're probably not going to change him. And so my attitude would be love him and and keep him at a catechetical distance from from uh, the faith development of this child. And now we'll head to Andrea, who is in Ann Arbor, Michigan, listening on Ave Maria Radio. Andrea, just a couple minutes left with Dr. Anders. What's your question today? All right, I will cut to the taste. So my husband and I have been going to Mass every Sunday for the longest time, so I'd like to say that we're um, not only just cradle Catholics, but um, lifetime Catholics. And I remember um, at one time when the priest will say, lift up your heart, the response is supposed to be, let us give thanks to the Lord our God. And then, this is my point, um, the response is supposed to be, it is right to give him thanks and praise. At my church, they have been demasculating God and saying, let's give God thanks and praise. And there's another part in the Mass where people have, re- have been replacing the masculine of he or him and saying just the neutral God. And I find that highly offensive. I don't know why people are doing that, but um, anyway, if, I don't know if... if Really, you can comment on that. Is this yeah, a matter I, of... I can absolutely comment on it. It's illegal. They are breaking the law, and their bishop should be informed. We n- No priest has the right to change the text of the Mass in that way. It is The, the rule is you, you say what is written in black, and you do what is prescribed in red, and you cannot take it on your own authority to, to change the Mass. So he's breaking the law. Andrea, thank you so much. Paul in Austin, Texas, our apologies, but we are just flat out of time. David, thank you as always for being so gracious with your time. This is our program geared for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters called to communion with Dr. David Anders. We ask that question every day. What is stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Thank you so much for tuning in. On behalf of our host, Dr. David Anders, our producer, Charles Beery, call screener Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams once again sitting in today for Tom Price. Thanks so much for tuning in. Until we get together next time, God bless.